The Pilber Killing by Sabine T. Shetlam, as read by Andrews Barr. This material is subject to copyright. Prologue. The attendant counted out the numbers in a sing-song voice, stopping at the eighth gate. He pulled the tray onto the roller heading and brought her out with a final clunk for her complete reveal. There was then that unpleasant business of the two men physically having to lift her from the tray to the table for the serious part. She was frail and gangly like a museum doll, were it not for the hypostatic pooled blood along her back and thighs that memorised the place and the way that she had been found. Atwood smoothed her hair as a parent might, making her look nice for the cameras and turning her head in stiff opposition, underscoring the chainmail link of deep impressions on her neck. Lower down she had been torn at, the only sign of becalmed neatness the tying together of her polished toes with a triple loop round of twine. Atwood half knelt in mocking gesture as he always did at the start of these things. The preliminary post-mortem prayer, a hangover, seared into his brain by the call of some European theatre of dissection that had absolved its criminals who had centuries ago been anatomised in the public places, squares such as these. From them it was a cleaning and redemptive ritual for souls travelling from one unknown history to the next, but it was still something that in this set of circumstances still degenerated into a spectacle. Atwood was not religious, nor was it something many other, any other coroner would do, just the compulsiveness of habitual superstition. He didn't really need the jerky reminder of the child in order to solemnify things. The wailing of her mother was blaring from the nightly news in the next room. He turned back towards his task and got on with what he was paid for, holding the knife as surgeons do with the stem of the handle cupped into his palm and with his fingers splayed out straight across the hub connecting the blade. He dragged the incision from the root of the neck across the front of her chest around the breast and down towards its junction with the abdomen in one swift and powerful cut down to the bone. And then the same thing along the other side. She was thin and the Flaps opened her up like a triptych. He took a power tool and ran it through the rib margins, which yielded like brushling saplings might to a chainsaw. The chest wall lifted off as one piece, and he flipped it towards himself like a kinder surprise. In any such examination, transecting the trachea below its inlet into the larynx, it is so remarkably easy to eviscerate someone. The heart and lungs and all the intestine come away from their moorings and one can just pull out a human being from its cavities like ripping off an ear of corn from the husk. A complete person extracted in one fell swoop. The rest of this one would just be the opening up of the stomach and sifting through all that soup, stashing away vials for toxin measurement, deciding about the last meal and such. The DC waiting around for an interim finding was not about to look at it and air any more, and he made his excuses and his thank yous. He'd had enough and could feel the insistent spasms of regurgent nausea bearing upon him. Almost 88 hours before, 
Oldies had found the dead Aboriginal girl in the bush on a nature walk. Oldies were often doing that sort of thing, nature walking and running over stuff with metal detectors, finding occult treasures and triumphantly holding them aloft to the ums and the ahs of the gobstruck onlookers. But there she was, unhidden, in plain sight for all and sundry to find, a careless and inattentive death. There may too have been neither rhyme nor reason why one person or another is ever singled out to manage such a case. Just dumb or bad luck is all, and this time it was Zimmerman's turn, even if the whys and wherefores that placed him there had been designed at the very start to set him up. Atwood would have known nothing about it, although he could have guessed. For now, in his ignorance, it was just one curt call in the middle of the night to Zimmerman from a superior he had never met but heard about. The sound of the phone chimed in with the total, the tonal alarm that he had received an email. The scan of a police report from the poor unknowing bastard first on the scene. The brief, bleak, interrupting messages had forced him at the most ungodly hour to catch the earliest flight to Broome and pick up the rental for the solid drive inland to Parbidou. Just another of those little communities so far from one another, often a half day's full drive, that are enough to exhaust even the bravest travellers, parched from too much sun beating hard on too much dusted road, to care about its name or its place within the Shire. Each with its trusted, warm and friendly greeting from some isolated townsfolk drawn in kinship on its entrance plate, here at its front door, one might say, to learn by a sudden, pla sudden passing flash of its 938 people at last count, and its regional claim to fame as the friendliest village east of Broome and home to the largest goanna this side of the black stump. And in this one place, on its tin-sheeted greeting in the bold, cursive blocks of the graffiti artists, writ large and fully covering its official lettering, a welcoming fuck you, creatively topped with an emphatic exclamation point and adorned with a little smiley face. Nice touch. Chapter 1 He had answered the call immediately without disturbing any of the desk clutter, his hand moving seamlessly amongst the books and the rings, the watch and the papers. Gripping straight onto the receiver, Zimmerman looked at the clock which lately seemed redundant. For the last year there was never a morning that he did not wake at some outrageous hour, well prior to the serviceable call of its alarm. His insomnia had not relented despite all the pills and the mindfulness tapes. It was 3.37am and the air outside was a deep rich black, still and windless like a stagnant tarpool. He put on his wireframes, pushing the sleep crust off of his eyes with a long hard rub adjusting to the outside gloom. The cloud covered everything except the one tinsel peak of Venus, the evening star which flashed defiantly in the night sky. Nowadays he had a sweet, gentle, almost politically correct nature that he had assiduously worked upon. A year ago he would have gruffed it out, or even growled down the line, frightening the caller and incurring some ridiculous report that he would have to fend off in the light of day in front of some idiot who hadn't the slightest understanding of his responsibilities. 
You could imagine the sterile manager who could never possibly have fathomed his anger rifling through some file or other in a committee meeting set up a month from now just for the purpose. That sort of thing would have wrapped him up hopelessly in responses and the officialdom of their replies for months. For God's sake, over whether a D.I. had growled at a public servant at 3.37 in the morning. Nowadays he knew better, and he rolled over onto his back, smiling at the interruption like he was a happy puppy, waiting for a tummy tickle. As happy as Larry. After graduating from the academy, Aidan Zimmerman had taken his degree in forensics, and the dual qualification made him a marketable commodity. He'd only been with the Western Australian forensics team for the last 14 months, focusing his lectures on the mechanics of ballistics to a group of Perth police cadets who most of the time seemed pretty bored with what they had been repeatedly told was the special privilege of working in law enforcement. Ahead of that, seconded to the Venice Carabinieri for two years, learning about crime scene investigation and attending one inspiring course, The Motivations of the Serial Killer under the watchful eyes of its director, Signor Castiglione. Zimmerman's was a technical and mathematical expertise, concerning itself with the yaw and rotations of missiles, the reaming of bullet casings and the filing of pistols. When put that way, it sounded far more exciting than it was, and most of the time was a pretty mundane business, calculating the weight of expended shells or shooting bullets across water balloons into pig hides. Trying to line up the marks made in the casings gouged out by their pressure on the firing pin. Perhaps to the uninitiated, it might have appeared so precise that it was often rather hit and miss, literally, and its science was not really all that exact. He callously thought about those instances where it had been pretty airtight, maybe in court convicting some poor fucker who carried the same type of weapon as had been used in a robbery or a murder, and then in conning some young, impressionable cadet at a local party into bed, holding her attention to a more enthralling version of his humdrum lifestyle with a bit of work banter. In his younger years, at least, some of them might have fallen for his bullshit lines and milled around him with the faux excitement, and at one time when it was new, his ballistic spiel had been a proverbial leg opener. He'd turned up with this reputation to the station and had personally protected its braggadocio legacy, even when it was far and away no longer fashionable to do so, if only to stop the other coppers from taking the piss out of him for being Jewish. He knew too that he was no DNA expert, and these days that meant that he was often trumped by what he called the molecular cops, not only in the cases he was invited to testify at, but also in his pulling power. Even today there were still a number of receptive girls who seemed sufficiently animated by a wanker with access to a gene sequencing laboratory capable of slapping a paternity charge on some hapless prick if needs be. The deprecating graffiti which decorated the entrance to the town was readily visible from the part of the western highway which led straight down towards the Premier Hotel, the Parbidou Shanty House. All of the original letters on the plate had been glossed over, making it appear almost officially sanctioned, like a committee might have, been appro- might have approved of it. The executive elders interested in the ministrations of such a shit heap could be imagined. It was the sort of place where civic pride was at a rock bottom, a 
and say they'd left it all alone like that for almost 18 months, seemingly the least amount of time that places like this could ever be galvanised into any sort of affirmative action. Jesus, place is such a dunghole, he said aloud as he drove through Parbidou's centre. The rental's aircon was on the blink and it was hot enough that he had the window down with his arm trailing outside. An old lady in the street heard him mouth off as he was stopped at a small speed hump. She was wheeling a trolley replete with groceries across the blip in the road and she pulled up and turned around to give him a glare. What is it, he said. A cigarette melted and adhered against his lower lip. The pronunciation of the sharp consonants spliced off a small shard of ash onto his new white shirt and he looked down at it, mouthing a soundless fuck. The woman was dressed in a buttoned-up blouse with a lace collar trimming sweetly finished at the neck and she turned to him demurely and told him, Fuck you too! as audible as if she were in a stockyard. He smiled and thought that the graffiti artists had insinuated themselves into the vernacular right nicely. It seemed to be the greeting of the day around these parts. His mind wandered back to the girl and his task, abandoned in the remotest Pilbara town, its own place of abandonment. There were some country corners like this one, so small that they needed the cavalry called in. No real experience of killings or how to handle them up here then. A little harsh reality in a harsher land to have their nose rubbed in it and to be reminded that they most likely couldn't cope and were obliged to hand it over to the experts down south, like some egregious baton in a foul relay race. It might have been one thing to cordon off the area and square it with yellow police tape, somehow imagining that such a simple act would sterilise it from wanton contamination and all the unpleasant destruction that may have made the solving of the case near impossible. It was quite another to actually expect that instituting the most basic of protocols might have ensured that all the evidence would be preserved in some useful manner and handled up here with the professionalism that it deserved. This is not to say that he could assume that this little hamlet was some corner of corruption or ineptitude, but rather that things this far north of civilization were just missed as often as not, and that in such a place the enthusiasm to resolve the death of some nameless or faceless little Aboriginal girl would not have been particularly high. Nothing in his years at the university had prepared him for his task today. Certainly not that single session with the WAPF counsellors on grief and death. It had all been woefully inadequate. All they had spouted was something that somebody had read from that Kubler-Ross woman about some stages he couldn't remember. He pulled open the glove compartment and a load of junk fell out. A registered Glock 22.4 calibre semi-automatic firearm. A pair of Saflock handcuffs. He made a mental note. He really shouldn't have them in here, even if there had never been in his experience any need to grab them, either of them, for an emergency. At the back there was a small pamphlet on grief counselling with a series of bullet points that he pulled out and that tore off as it freed itself from the rest of the mess in the glove box. It came as no surprise that the least experienced of the force should be charged with the task of meeting the relatives and breaking the news to them. No doubt he thought some arse with epaulets and pips was sitting in his office with a glass of sipping whiskey in his hand, going on and on about the trials of being a deputy commissioner 
and the great responsibility he had over any field worker. He often would talk aloud to himself almost without realising. Yeah, that's right. Why the fuck don't you come down over here and do it yourself then? Friendliness and prejudice were both more naked here, and he knew that he might not be particularly welcome no matter what his demeanour. The black and white families in places like these generally had nothing to do with one another, even when the website showed them together in the happiest embrace. There were plenty of them around in the town, all right, but few of the Aborigines lived in the structured dwellings and the built-up parts, and most opted for their small humpties and their makeshift lean-tos on the outskirts of town and much farther beyond. No boundary or barrier between their home and their land, hard etched with its storied rocks, the stiff coarseness of the spinifex, and the drenching mood of their spirit lakes. But these are not things their white neighbours would have cared much about. The Pavadu shanty house had its own website. When he arrived, it seemed that both were under construction, and it was somewhat difficult to see, given the nature of the place, why one would have been much advantaged by the other. The front wire screen was partially off, and Zimmerman sauntered up to the counter, pretending in a place where everyone already knew everyone else, to appear like a local. He slapped away the flies with a regularity from his right and left, like a metronome. The lady behind the strip of balsa, wood that separated the customers from the staff, raised her eyebrows as the only effort she might have made to inquire what it was that anyone wanted, and with a beer in her hand and with the bar set already so low, it seemed natural for her to ask him what the fuck he wanted. I've come about the dead girl, he blurted. Oh, and by the by, preening a little, I'm an inspector from the WAF, picking uh, and adding this seemingly as an entry coder. He knew around these parts that if he introduced himself as D.I. Zimmerman, they wouldn't like it. Oh yeah, we've been waiting for you. She seemed unimpressed. The Matu is at the clinic since we don't have a hospital. The doctor's there now and he wants to get rid of her. She drew a small map from a soft pencil to show where the clinic was located some eight kilometres away and close to a large landmark baobab tree. It won't be quite that simple, he replied. I'll need to see where they found her and before that interview her family. Good luck with that, love, she snorted. It was the first and only time she'd expressed some non-specific friendliness. Walking out, she swivelled around and belatedly asked him for some identification. Zimmerman wrestled with his pockets to bring out his badge and laminated staff card and, whilst he was fiddling with them, wrapped up in gum and cigarette papers, he asked her what a matu was. You've obviously got a bit to learn, honey. She seemed a little friendlier now that she had found out what a rube he was and after he was confirming his status. Zimmerman, eh? she said. Are you a yib then? And she sneered again, raising the edge of her lip like a snarling hound. That's for me to know and you to find out. He offered the quick comeback as though he'd been practising the line for years. Zimmerman's simple comeback line had proven handy in those country towns and he'd used it before travelling to Broome two months previous with Chief Monroe. That time they'd investigated the death of a small Aboriginal boy who had washed up on Cable Beach and whom the local police had imagined would interest the Metropolitan Force. 
but it just turned out that the poor kid had been stung by a box jellyfish, panicked off the headland and drowned. Simply too tired to swim back to safety after the most unfortunate sting. Zimmerman seemed distracted thinking about that last triumph when she pulled him back from his reverie. The matu of those abos of the great sandy desert. It means one of us and the wanker lingo. But thank Christ it really means one of them, eh? Who knows anyhow? They have so many languages up there. No doubt one bong can't understand the other. That's why they kill each other, isn't it? She looked around for a collective racist sympathy and some of the truckies nodded approvingly. Anyhow, they roams the whole Pilbara, she said, like she was being interviewed for some hillbilly documentary. They're as far up as Jigalong and Lake Disappointment. Even Zimmerman knew where that was. Hadn't some explorer followed all those rivulets, expecting to discover a reservoir lake, but only to find a dried-up salty crust bed? Better should have been called Lake Pissed Off, than he thought. One old man at the end of the plank looked up with a beer in his hand and chimed in. They know where the water is, he said, smiling and flashing a row of neglected teeth. They know the local artesian bores, that's for sure. When driven cattle came there, here just after we federalised, they, they, they were tortured for that info. He said after which he went back looking disconsolately into his beer like there was some hidden prize at the bottom of the glass. The proprietress finally formally introduced herself. Mrs Joanne Palmenter, she proudly beamed like it should mean something around these parts. Call me Joe, she said. It was just time to insert her two bobs worth. Oh yeah, the natives were chained to the trees for that. The baobab you'll be passing has a small plaque. We may be cruel, but we can still commemorate. Now she laughs as did the others. If it was her joke, it was all right. Zimmerman raised a smirk, maybe to feel a little more at home. There's that rabbit-proof fence that runs past Jigalong too, said the old lady who had sneered at him outside and who had come in for a quiet beer. The cottontail wall, longer than that one in China, and I bet you can see ours from outer space. Now they all laughed and sighed as though they might have preferred old times when the Matu knew their place. A full-blood Aboriginal man next to the old one smiled a handsome wide grin and tried to straddle both the past and the present like it was nothing. He clutched tightly at his beer, reflecting silently on a time when he couldn't even get served. Now just one of the crowd, he lectured them on their separation and, changing the subject, piped up over the noisy laughter. You know that my old dad had never even seen a white man until his teens. He knew they were around from his ancestors. They were in the stories, and the first time he saw one was when they shoved him out of his home at Marilinga, just before they blew up those atom bombs, you remember? They all nodded, recalling how the British government had tested their nuclear weaponry just after the war in the remotest part of the empire, as if somehow when it was all queen and country it was a better time. And then the full blood tugged at a makeshift forelock and he doffed an invisible hat. Imagine just letting off an H without telling anyone, he said. They told us, Blackfella, don't be look at the light and roll your sleeves down. But we got none to roll. Christ, Zimmerman thought to himself, what a dump. And he grinned broadly, thinking it still looked a little like the epicentre of a nuclear attack. The sun was setting down and it had been a long day with travel and all. He decided to catch up the following morning with a local constabulary, one senior sergeant Paul Nan Curvis, 
and then the doctor, whom they all called the German. He called Dr. Messner, who angrily argued with him over why he was not coming out that evening. Zimmerman tried to explain the tribulations of his day's travels, but Messner had no interest. He told him that it necessitated that he stay in his clinic in a bunk bed until morning with the body in the procedural room, keeping guard so that it wouldn't be taken. No one in her family, he explained, was keen about the autopsy, cutting her up. He screamed his righteous displeasure over the line as Zimmerman claimed a faulty connection and hung up. Now in his last beer, he watched the iridescent reds and ambers as the sunset spread itself out like a melted cheese across the monotony of the flatlands. He laid the half-beer aside lest he smell too much of alcohol as it was time to see the girl's family. The space between the land and the sky merged and as he left his valise with Joe, she gave him an envelope Constable Nam Curvis, the town's head policeman, had left for him. She reminded him that drinking was permitted in the room, but should he feel sick, the management preferred it if patrons could vomit outside. It seemed a not unreasonable request, and he said that he would try his best to comply. There was no escaping it, his duty. He'd driven almost all day and could not shirk the mission now. The sour notes of any job can overwhelm its proudest moments, and he knew that he was not good at the telling at taking families aside and shouldering their grief. How often had he seen a little body threshed at or bloated with the weight of water, plunged senseless under a depth of temporary concealment, only to surface and be found by some hapless bastard totally unprepared for the experience. He was unschooled at the counselling and consoling and the listening bits, and he knew it. It wasn't in his blood and he would lapse into long silences and mesmeric stares whilst those around him dismantled and then recollected themselves under the weight of tragic news. Some of it could wait until morning. Chapter 2 Walking into the cool breeze, he opened the envelope, and it contained a single map leading away from the road he was on to the Jeffreys' house. The words, good luck, were written on it. The bottom of the envelope held a silver charm bracelet, which looked fairly unusual with a small crib on the chain and a little baby inside, along with a ring of hearts and locks and two tiny serpents intertwined, both with different coloured glass eyes, one ruby red and one emerald green. <coughs> it looked expensive, and yet she still had it on her. There was also an identity picture of the front of her left foot with a Japanese cherry blossom tree tattoo and a small singing bird. Nancurvis, he imagined, had been thoughtful and attempted to spare the family with this small collection. Perhaps there was no amount of artfulness in amongst his snapshots that would have provided an image of her which would cause him neither regret for having submitted it nor her family revulsion for its inclusion. But Zimmerman needn't have assumed the worst. There were often suitable pictures of their faces that could be taken, but where a family identification was still called for. Even in some cases that were mangled up, they would often be taken with discretion, avoiding the more damaged parts, so that to save the poor relatives the ignominy of a viewing. 
No doubt Nankervis had his reasons for providing only one photo of a keepsake and another of an adolescence idea of a permanent stain that she would have probably thought in life was pretty cool. He carefully placed the two items back into the envelope and sealed it with a clip. The Jeffreys had no phone, so he couldn't ring it, wing it that way and avoid a face-to-face. It had to be done, and the longer it went on, the harder it became. He got into his car and drove the nearly 50 kilometres to their house, following the crude map. As far as homes go, it was fairly typical with a front veranda that had plenty of room for tales late at night. He could imagine the family gathering around and listening to some ancestral story, an exploit, or overseas travel, a tale of adversity and triumph. A white family, at any rate. But this veranda was strewn with beer bottles and old rugs. This was no place for lilting up and looking at the stars. Its stories may have been as vivid, but they were doubtless different, and he would never hear them. There was one wicker chair that had no mesh back and a chaise long, the fabric of which had been ripped off its moorings. The front door was off the hinge and nearly tilted off. It may have been rough, but the area was normally safe, and there had been few reported robberies around there, even when the front doors had been left wide open. He thought back about that bracelet, that her killer had been polite enough not to have pilfered it. A woman, perhaps in her late thirties or so, answered the door as Zimmerman rapped on its front. Her head was partially covered with a polka-dot scarf, but underneath her hair was silky and long. It poked out in tufts under the kerchief, and there were little strands of grey speckled in which gave her an authority beyond her years. She was not used to seeing a white man at her door, and she called out for her husband who came in from the back in a pair of football shorts with no top, his chest tattooed with a large god is love on the front. What is it, the man first said, and then almost immediately afterwards, who the fuck are you? Another man came in and they started talking in their native. Are you the Jeffreys, Zimmerman asked. Who the fuck wants to know, he answered, at which Zimmerman flashed his WAPF badge and the man slammed the door in his face. It couldn't really be opened, and Zimmerman could hear scurrying inside and some unintelligible screaming. Before he could say much else, he heard the noise upstairs of the toilet repeatedly flushing. It's about your daughter, Lisa, Zimmerman shouted. There was no reply. He waited another small period, which seemed a long time, or time enough for all the shit they'd just flushed to make its way down the S-bend. And then he repeated, I need to talk to you about Lisa. Again, there was no reply. And by this time he could see the other man climbing over the back fence. I have no interest in drugs, he shouted, or really anything else. Her soft voice came through the door asking for a surety. He obliged and he opened it, lifting the door upwards off the roll carpet. Easing his back against the wall, he slid in. Her husband had come down the stairs and he was sniffing and grasping the end of his nose repeatedly between his thumb and forefinger and then pushing the back of his hand over his face, cleaning up the last of his blow. It was just then that Zimmerman saw how beautiful she was. She was large, to be sure, with a lopsided ample bosom, but her eyes were surprisingly coloured, hazel, one might say, or a cross between deep amber and macchiato, the Venetian reared on the luxury of Titian's frescoes like 
Mother's milk might have called it burnt sienna. Below, her nose flared out broadly across her face, invading her cheek. Her dark skin was flawless. Has she been stealing food from the KFC again? she asked, sitting down on the large vinyl sofa and sinking her frame into the unkempt seats. She had partly disappeared into the plush and was sitting so far below his eye line that she should, should she need to get up, she would struggle. Zimmerman now stared at the floor and at his shoes and at anything else that occupied his field of vision, but not at her beautiful face. He didn't answer her. It didn't seem of any moment to her that Lisa had been an absentia for four full days. She goes off at times. She's a good girl now. But before it was the sniffing sickness. She's off all that stuff now. Needs time on her own to think, I guess. It was a house where one child could be as much missed as forgiven for going AWOL. No less or more caring than anywhere else. Oh, that'll be it, her father pitched in. She, however, seemed to know it might be something else. No, it isn't that, Vernon, she said. Shut the fuck up and let him speak. She scrutinised Zimmerman's face for some earthly clue. Did she steal some money? She never means to do anything bad and we can pay it all back, she whined. She looked at Zimmerman in a way a helpless mother looks at anyone in cheap and brief authority. Lifting herself up with difficulty off the vinyl where her legs had stuck in the warm air, she grasped Zimmerman's arm, partly to heave herself forwards and partly to shake him out of the orbit of his downward gaze. He said nothing. The husband and wife both looked at one another. That incredulous look that people offer when there's nowhere to go, when their loan had been rejected or their house money gambled or drunk away and there's no avenue of recovery. And then she started crying. Not a simple little rhythmic hunched shoulder thing of the soft sob or the quavering bottom lip that weepers show as their globes brim with tears and the small-spaced lacuni spill out and over and fall wetly onto soft choked cheeks. No, it was a howl like some wounded animal, loud and lower pitched than her speaking voice, long and lamentable, the sort of sound from someone right familiar with pain as if Zimmerman had just performed an experiment on her without an anaesthetic, just to see how much suffering she could tolerate and still keep standing. Vernon had righted his nostrils, licking his fingers after they had hoovered up the remnants of cocaine from their edges. He came forward, hugging her as she bellowed out, and then deeply and noisily drew her breath in at the terminal end of the crying. She's dead, isn't she? She wailed as large strings of tear-clogged mucus fell from her nose onto Vernon's chest. It was the rich, prophetic guess any mother might have made that heralds a bad end for their child. A place where she could no longer protect her kid from all she knew was out there. A resignation and a defeat. It was only then that Zimmerman pulled out the bracelet from the envelope and her eyes filled up and she nodded. And then the photograph of the tattoo. Vernon grabbed it and stared hard, throwing it onto the floor. He curled up into a ball on the couch and the veins on the side of his head filled and flushed. That's my baby, he softly said. She is dead, isn't she? 
asking the rhetorical question and hoping to be countermanded. Zimmerman was neither trained nor inclined in his personality to even answer with the yeses or the noes, and his still silence seemed a tacit yes, both parents leaving each other's arms and clawing at his shirt sleeves. This was a place not unfamiliar with the experience of senseless death. One small baby deformed with no forebrain that she had delivered and buried all by herself. One other with its heart so malformed that the Lord had seen fit to take him, as she had put it, just short of his second birthday. Now compelled to act, Zimmerman nodded a single, simple nod, and their faces contorted into a chronic downward pull of the mouth, frozen and open both looking like the unhappy theatrical masks he had seen in every Venetian vendor's window. The yang to a smiling yin. He'd done his job, hadn't he? God, he wished he could leave. Then as quickly as it had started, it stopped. She composed herself and brushed back the fringe of her hair. She stood straight and proud and asked her whens and her hows. All the questions that anyone would ask and whose answers at this early stage can change or even mean nothing. None of it crosses back to how people ever were, and it dawned on her that Lisa was never coming home, even with all the questions answered that could possibly have been quickly formulated in her heart and mind. And so they made that small adjustment in order that they could at least understand. The tears were wiped, the hands held so tight the skin was pallid, and the ears were cranked for any clue of this pointless place to which they had arrived. She relented and cleared away the crusted dampness of her tears, even smiling lightly. Her upbringing kicked in. Please forgive my manners. Would you like a cup of tea? It seemed so foolishly polite. Against all better judgment, with his head pounding and his heart pumping in sympathetic beat, he accepted. The room fell into a prolonged silence and even the bush noise was muted. I'll come by later in the morning tomorrow and ask you to formally identify her, he said, and they both showed a closed-eyed obedience. We'll not know more until the Crown Pathologist has examined her in Perth. The we gave it all an official air, like the collective really knew what it was talking about and doing and providing some closure. We're not going anywhere, Vernon muttered, and he was hunched forward. His tattoo seemed more deflated and less sympathetic. It mightn't be her too, you know, she muttered. She was appealing now only to his sense of decency. What were the odds? Another girl could have taken her bracelet. Surely those tattoos all look alike. But of course they don't. Zimmerman explained that they would have to go to Messner's the next morning for the identification. They should be prepared, not to, to go, but for the worst. But yes, it was possible, it could all be a mistake, and he tacitly agreed with her greatest hope. He bade his goodbyes, and for some strange reason he hugged Vernon, who was taken aback and who recoiled slightly onto the sofa. It may have been some simple, affectionate legacy of his Venetian stay, and Zimmerman suddenly realised that maybe no white man had ever embraced him like that before. Worse still, prior to the discomfort of that moment, Zimmerman had transiently thought of placing a small kiss on the woman's cheek, but he decided better of it, instead offering his hand. She took it limply in hers, 
and thought how inappropriate that she herself had wished that he had hugged her too. They held hands for way too long until she retracted hers. Marinda, she smiled, that's my name. It means beautiful woman. They got that right, he thought. Thank you.